Welcome to Leading Thinkers, a podcast about leadership in the humanities, humanities and leadership, and how studying the humanities affects leadership practices. Our host is John Esposito, Classics PhD and co-founder of Calion, a nonprofit dedicated to elevating leadership through the humanities. episode, my guest Joel Christensen and I talk about Homer's Iliad and also about the larger epic or literary context that the Iliad is part of. As a little bit of background for our viewers who may not be familiar with either the Iliad or the epic cycle, I'm just going to provide a little bit more on the, the parts of the Iliad that we discussed and about the parts of the epic cycle that came up. So just to recap, um, the Iliad by quote-unquote Homer, we don't know who this person is or if it was one individual, is the oldest surviving work of literature in Western Europe. This means is that it is not only a good picture of a society that actually predated the rough composition period of the poem, as far as we can guess, by about 500 years, but also it is an extremely good image of the founding thoughts of the Greek civilization. Greeks, in fact, argued uh, later on over whether Homer was a good foundation for civilization. Plato famously thought that Homer wasn't actually the best place to get knowledge about many sorts of specialized things. But nevertheless, um, one of the most important things you would learn as any student, as any person growing up in ancient Greece was Homer's Iliad and Homer's Odyssey. The Iliad, to recap, and we, we focus in the conversation on Iliad books one and nine a bit, but the Iliad is about an episode, a relatively short episode, in the Trojan War, the war over the city of Ilion, um, which is another name for Troy, a name that actually seems to have been uh, represented in other languages besides ancient Greek. This, in this episode, the war for Troy had been going on for 10 years because of something that we'll talk about in the interview. Uh, a plague has begun in the army. Plague has been raging. Um, this is in the invading Greek army, um, the army of the Achaeans who are attacking the city of Troy. During this plague, many of the soldiers in this army have been dying and no one has done anything about it. So the poem opens um, with the greatest warrior in the Achaean army, that is Achilles, who is the son of Thetis, a sea nymph, a, a goddess, and a mortal, uh, King Peleus, who's the nicest mortal around. He's a very good and very just man. Poem starts with Achilles calling a meeting of all the other um, warrior chieftains or um, basileis. This is a word sometimes translated as king, but it doesn't mean a supreme ruler, it means warrior chieftains in the Achaean army. He says, Look, many people are dying, we have to do something about it. This is sometimes taken as an implicit rebuke against the biggest, most powerful of the warrior kings, a man who gets the title Wanax, that is Agamemnon, means a supreme commander of sorts. He doesn't have any formal authority, but he has the largest contingent by far. And also he's the person who's most directly invested in the mission of the war, which is to take back a woman that a prince of Troy named Paris had stolen because this woman is the wife of Agamemnon's brother Menelaus. So while Agamemnon is not formally in charge, he is the one who is effectively in charge. He's the one who has the most authority and he has not done anything to stop the plague. So Achilles calls this meeting to see what they can do about it. And then it turns out in this meeting that the plague was started by Agamemnon himself, stealing the daughter and not returning the daughter for ransom of a priest of Apollo. And because Apollo is the god of healing, medicine, mathematics, music, and plague, um, Apollo has sent the plague on the uh, army to punish it. So not only is Achilles doing the job that perhaps Agamemnon should be doing, but also he is making up for some wrong that Agamemnon committed. And the dispute that occurs after, as a result of this meeting is what we're talking about in this interview. At the end of this dispute, Achilles is infuriated. In fact, he's enraged and he quits. He leaves the Greek army with his forces, which are significant. Not only is he a great warrior, but his men are also a very important and unusually well-organized portion of the army. As a result of this, many, many Archaeans die. Looks like the Trojans are starting to gain the upper hand. 
at that point, Achilles' best friend and warrior companion, Hetairos, that's a word that means warrior buddy, and it also comes from the root for self, it's somewhat connected to the sense of self. Patroclus, this is the warrior, the warrior companion's name, asks Achilles, can I enter battle on your behalf, disguised as you, actually in your armor, and Achilles says, sure, and Patroclus, as a result, enters combat, is very successful for a while, but he's killed partly through the intervention of the gods. And this brings Achilles back into the war. Not long before Patroclus enters combat, the Greeks have already have already realized that they can't fight successfully without Achilles. And so they send a delegation of some of the most powerful heroes, including people who are closely connected with Achilles personally, to try to get him to come back. And this is the, uh, what happens in Iliad Book 9, which is the other um, text that we talked about quite a bit in this interview. And in this section in the, of the poem, these three people, this is Odysseus, Ajax, and Phoenix, each with different kinds of arguments, try to persuade Achilles to come back and fight, and Achilles refuses them and refutes their arguments on various grounds, usually on grounds of value, um, not usually on grounds of logic. But this is very telling how you deal with a situation in which a lot of people are dying, and which it's your responsibility, formally or informally, to stop that from happening. The final bit of context I'll provide is something that I mentioned in the interview and that Joel and I talked about, which is the epic cycle. Now, the Iliad is um, a well-preserved poem, or at least in a certain form, but it was part of a series of poems that were, most of which were not nearly as well-preserved. So the Iliad and the Odyssey are well-preserved. The other poems that form the entire story of Troy and the surrounding events, the, called the epic cycle, those were mostly not preserved. We have fragments of them. We have summaries of them, fairly thorough summaries of them. We have a lot of visual representations of stories from them on vases that were preserved, vases that are preserved in ancient Greece um, because they're made of clay and clay is dirt. And once they're dried out, there's not really much that happens to it. So we have many, many pictures from these stories. And the epic cycle begins, uh, that is the story of the War of Troy begins in a poem that was called the Cypria, um, that which is a title of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And this is the poem that contains the famous story of the judgment of Paris. And that is to say, the, the story that begins and encourages eventually or gives divine sanction to the Trojan prince Paris's theft of Helen from her lawful husband in Sparta, Menelaus. What does come up in a conversation is this notion of the plan of Zeus. So Zeus being a supreme god is the god to whom some higher level of causality in the events of the universe are attributed than any other individual. He's not a supreme god. He's not a one god or monotheistic or henotheistic divinity. But if anyone is in charge of things, it's Zeus. And mortals regularly um, accuse Zeus of, of, of injustice. They blame Zeus for just taking away someone's good fortune, giving someone else good fortune, and so forth. We know Zeus is not fully in charge, but we do know from the beginning of the Iliad that the rage of Achilles, the departure of Achilles from battle at the beginning, and then possibly by implication, and Joel and I talked about this, a second rage of Achilles that causes more bloodshed when Achilles returns to battle after his warrior companion Patroclus is killed, these are the result of the boule of Zeus, the plan of Zeus, or the will of Zeus, or the plot of Zeus. And the Iliad doesn't tell us what this boule of Zeus is, but this phrase, this word boule, does appear in fragments of the Cypria, the beginning of this whole Trojan story. And in there, it seems that the boule of Zeus, the plan of Zeus, is, is to cause the Trojan War, and specifically by means of the Trojan War, to cause as much human death as possible. And the reason for this is that the earth has been overburdened, humans are stamping on her feet or making too much noise, they're causing problems, and earth herself requests that Zeus, who is in charge of the cosmos, if anyone is, gets rid of some of them. So the purpose of the plan of the will of the boule of Zeus, as expressed in the Cypria, as only named but not fully described in the Iliad, is depopulation. So these stories of death, stories of death by disease and by war, are certainly consistent with part of Zeus's plan. Now, as Joel points out, we don't actually know if the form of the Cypria or the, the version of the boule of Zeus in particular 
that is recorded in the fragments that survive, which come from a later period than the Iliad, were the fragments that are referred to by Boulay of Zeus in the Iliad. That's not clear. This is a scholarly argument, which is ongoing. But at least in the what we have from later material says that that is what Zeus was trying to figure out. And so the, in the context of our conversation, uh, the Boulay of Zeus, as expressed in the Kypria, seems to be results in a scenario in which the human leaders are fighting against Zeus's plan, fighting against Zeus's will, when they try to preserve the lives of their men. This is the sort of difficulty of leadership that is pushed to an extreme in the story of the Trojan War, that Joel and I talk about a little bit in the context of the Iliad, and in the context, again, specifically of the plague, but then, again, in the context of the war, two different ways that Zeus and the agents of the plan of Zeus have of killing humans as much as possible. So, um, without further ado, I hope you enjoy our episode. So, let's just start with maybe as is inevitable between Homerists, Iliad 1, your take on that situation and uh, maybe on like what people do right and wrong or what the situation was and what it means for the, the viewers and the characters. So let me start with a, a larger principle and then go back to Iliad 1. And the larger principle, I think, is that plagues in the ancient world are just another setting, sort of an, an extremist opportunity to think about how human beings make everything worse for themselves through their own recklessness. So I'm cribbing there from the line 32 to 34 of the Odyssey, 132 to 34, which probably isn't fair because we want to talk about the Iliad. But one of the things I've always been struck by is the uh, plot similarity between the Iliad and Sophocles' Oedipus Tyrannus, right? And they both start out with a basic problem, which is that there's a plague, you've got a leader who's supposed to do something about it, and there are people who know what the problem is, and that the leader refuses to acknowledge the problem, all right? So that's really broad strokes uh, on sort of a thematic. If I were to make sort of a morphology of a political narrative in early Greece, I would say that that's what we've got. And we have important variations in each tale. And, you know, for me, starting in probably January last year, well up into March, I was thinking about that constantly as I watched our public discourse about COVID-19. And the this reason year, I, you mean like 2020. Yeah, in 2020, yeah. right? And the reason I was thinking about it so deeply is that I was, I'm chair of the Faculty Senate at Brandeis University, and I was part of discussions all along, tracking it, seeing what's happening, and then having to make fast decisions. So, you know, we were all hearing about it in the news, but I was hearing about reports from Mass General, from epidemiological studies, and watching actual leaders of communities, my provost and president, make hard calls as other people did different things. So for me, you know, I, like you, John, I walk around with Homer in my head all the time. And I've been thinking about the Iliad for years. The last time I really worked, uh, thought of the Iliad and modern events was the war on terror, right? So I was a graduate student there at, on 9-11 and I just started. And then I started working my dissertation during the war on terror. And for me at the time, the Iliadic, coalition of, Ache of Achaeans going across the sea to fight a dubious conflict was an easy parallel to what was going on in the dubious war on terror, especially as we watched sort of the, co the coalition of the willing, as it was called in the beginning, fragment as the mission fell apart. And as, you know, the main entity here in the United States started engaging in excess. So again, there are facile comparisons there. But my interest in the Iliad has, has long been about you know, politics and language. When we get to the conflict in Iliad 1, we have a conflict of 
essential political interests, right? What's the relationship between the uh, well-being of the people and the advantages and pleasures of those who lead them? Well, let me ask you real quick, people, do you mean collective? Do you mean specifically the kind of Homeric slash Medieval term Laos? Do you mean specifically the army, warrior companions? Uh, so These I like- different sorts of responsibility. I like to keep it a little open. So, and the reason I do, so obviously- so Collective, the, in other words, just the yeah. general, okay. Well, yeah. look, but, but you're right to ask the question because the, the refrain you get in the Iliad repeatedly, you get Agamemnon saying something like it in Hector, is that I, you know, basically, Olesa La'on, right? I destroyed my own, my host, right? So what does the people mean? Is a La'os, that Homeric word for people that Ioannis Hubble wrote such a good book about, does that, is that just the fighting army? Or is this really a metonym for the whole people? For me, for the Iliad to work as a political narrative that appealed to audiences throughout the ancient world, it's gotta be a metonym, right? It's gotta represent not just the fighting men, but the baggage train and the families. And when, and when Hector talks about it, really, he's talking about this whole city of Troy, right? He's talking about the people really are a stand-in for the polis. Right, and I think um, that the idea that the army or the conflict of Troy has to be extrapolated onto even the whole cosmos or the whole human race, um, no. you may not agree with this, but this is, it's quite possible to read a number of the themes, a number of the images even, including the destruction of the human wall as, as the destructive event. And of course, in the epic tradition, this right. is the destructive event, the population thinning event, the one that is analogous in the Greek tradition to the Near Eastern <laughs> flood event. So yeah, it's absolutely I, the case, there's metonyms all over the place when you deal with that group of people that's suffering and dying yeah. in, in the war. I agree with that, yeah. And so for me, pretty early on, it became clear to me that we had, as usually happens, is that the suffering of the people became a, a, you know, to use bad television news language, became a political football, right? And in the, the, what was actually best for the people was ignored from the beginning. So just to go through it rapidly, right? Crisis comes and he asks for his daughter back. And he says, look, I'll give you these goods on the piece of Apollo. And the first and most important thing that happens is the people shout in assent. And in David Elmer's beautiful book, The Poetics of Consent, he talks about how important this is in Homeric poetry as signaling sort of a, you know, an ethical baseline, right? So as a person who's interested in politics here, is that simply what is politics simply collective assent? Is there, because there's no notion of a state, there's notion of a transcendent entity at this point. I mean, so there's part of that, but there's also the people are communicating here what's ethically and morally right. Okay, so right. this is a judgment. It's not merely I'm following this person's opinion or claim. I'm right. saying this, this my own intelligence the, I contribute. Okay, this is the right thing to do, right? And Agamemnon says no because it's inconvenient for him and he loses something, right? And then the plague goes for nine days. Nobody does shit for nine days, right? Which has always bothered me. And then Achilles gets up. Right? And Achilles says, hey, all these people are dying. We should consult any list people, you know, a dream weaver, or a bird interpreter, or maybe a, maybe a seer. And he's like, oh, a seer happens to be here. Hey, Calchas. And Calchas says, I know the answer, but I don't want to give it to you because it might upset someone who's really powerful. And Achilles is like, I don't care. I'll protect you against the guy, even if it's Agamemnon. So for me, I mean, this is political theater from the first line on, right? Everybody's waited. I think, you know, we could even picture it as Achilles waited till maximum tolerable death rates have been, have been reached, right? And then he comes in and he 
he comes in and he asks, you know, for, you know, he performs this incredible political drama, right? And the drama is, hey, somebody comes in and gives a particular answer, which is that Agamemnon's at fault, which is what everybody knew. So it's really here about, about Achilles coming in. And the question is, does he care about the people or is this an opportunity to garner greater honor for himself? We're missing about the role of a seer here, right? So, or expert. Are these people scientific experts? Do they just know more about reality than the rest of the warrior types do? Or are they, do they have a specific religious significance? Like they're connected to the gods and that's why we should listen to them? Well, and so that's one of the interesting things. So in that article that you mentioned, that's in the conversation. I originally had a whole bit about the seer being sort of Dr. Fauci, but they wanted, they just cut that out because they thought it was weird. But I think in the ancient world, I don't think it's weird. I think that it's precisely the point, right? Is that Calchas, like Tiresias in Oedipus Tyrannus, is endowed by the text itself with unmistakable and incontrovertible knowledge, right? We've been told by the, by the narrator that this is the problem, right? And anybody who's reasonable knows it's the problem. And Calchas says, look, here's the problem and here's the solution, right? And so this is, I mean, this is a classic thing that happens, right? Is that the truth is often inconvenient for people in power because it disrupts their power structure, right? Unless you're, unless you're slightly underneath the person in charge, then using the truth can actually increase your power. Right, which is maybe what Achilles is trying to do. But I guess we should also point out, I think, and you can, you can disagree here, it's not clear at the moment when Calchas first speaks up that the power structure will be disrupted even if he speaks out against Agamemnon. It's only when we know the specific content of right. what that truth is, which is you know, that Agamemnon has to give up something which is fundamental to his position as the superior member of this warrior band. That is, what constitutes your superiority is the spoils that you get from somebody else after distribution that's agreed upon. And I think, you know, what I love about the beginning of the Iliad, just to sort of, to go back from sort of the specific focus on those few scenes to, to the broader picture, is I think it's a fairly realistic depiction of how people play political games and raise the stakes with unintended con consequences resulting. Right? I don't think Agamemnon and Achilles go into the argument with each other with the intent of alienating the other person completely and ensuring that all the Achaeans die, right? Because yep. then the poem wouldn't be about Achilles' rage. It would be about his terrible miscalculation, right? So they go in, and this is what happens in politics all the time. Oh, here's a wedge issue. I will exploit it, and let's see what happens. And boom, and I hate to go this far, but I will, 200,000 people are dead. Right, and that's really where we are now. Two hundred thousand people are dead in our plague, and they're nameless. So that's the second thing that I was really thinking about when it came to the beginning of the Iliad, is that it says myriad Achaeans go to their doom, right? But very few of them are named. Whereas in the rest of the poem, typically you'll have a character who didn't even come up, and then they're named when they're killed, and sometimes even their family and their friends are named right. just because. But, that's but what you Iliad also does. just get numbers and numbers of dead, right? And so one thing that I walk around with now when it comes to the Iliad that I didn't have before is that the people on top and their families pretty much survive the crises, right? But the unnamed dead, the masses who suffer because of their game playing, don't even get proper burials. And I guess that's what I was thinking when it came to New York City, right? So I don't know how, if you felt this way during 
the, epi the height of the epidemic in New York, but as someone who lived in New York for so long, I mean, I ache for that city, right? Yeah, most of my family is still in New York. Yeah. And, you know, you know, the ambulance is going all the time, the refrigerated, you know, all that stuff, yeah. Yeah, and that's just, I mean, that's, that's something that years ago when I thought about the Iliad, I just didn't think about the, the masses. I didn't think about the laos except as a figure, right? right. Those are real people whose lives and experiences are occluded when they're dependent on the, you know, pleasures and the fights of the people who have power. I mean, it's the game playing of the more of the Basileus, the kings, but also the game playing of the gods, of course. And again, in the context of the epic cycle, possibly the game playing of the gods with the entirety of humanity. The goal being literally to kill as many people as possible for the purpose of decreasing the weight on the surface of the earth. Yeah. And to me, that actually makes the plague seem like it's not totally dissimilar from the purpose of the Trojan War in the first place. And this is the flip side it a little bit is why I'm especially annoyed when uh, that nowadays people make the, the current play COVID seem like it's a function of human activity. It's, it itself is just a thing that happens. The world is just killing you. Yeah. You can respond to that in a certain way, but it's not human will that decided to ruin you know, the, the election because of... Well, I mean, that's what we do, right? I mean, part of the way we survive sort of short, but sometimes endless lives without clear meaning is we assign meaning and agency where it isn't there. So it's hard, right? I see this a lot in, you know, the sort of right-wing attempts to blame COVID-19 on China, right? Or some mysterious conspiracy, right? If you create an agent and an enemy, then it takes the uncertainty and meaninglessness out of the suffering, right? Well, it's an easier ask, narrative. Sure, but let me ask then about the Rage of Achilles again. And this actually relates to how I've started to teach the Iliad to my students which has changed over time, but it mostly changed not through, it mostly changed through basically reading the Iliad very slowly and carefully instead of to extract knowledge from it, but instead to feel it as a human or something like that. One interpretation of the Rage of Achilles is that it is in response to his being dishonored. That's the standard, that's what Homer explicitly says. There's another argument, and this is most, I think, famously presented by Glenn Most, that there's two rages of Achilles, right? One that's an honor matter, and the other one that's at the death of Patroclus, his, his warrior buddy, Satyros. And that's the second rage of Achilles, and it's greater. It's where you actually see him killing people. We actually see like an explosion of fire from him, right, where he becomes elemental and all of that. And that's a response to people getting killed, not a social structure, but to just the fact of an enemy having destroyed him. So his rage is directed against someone who's a nice guy, fairly nice guy, Hector, but still killed someone that he cares about. So I want to complicate that and then take it back to the whole cosmic perspective that you introduced by talking about the fragment, introductory fragment to the Cypriot, right? So let me take it one step at a time. So one, I definitely agree that Achilles' rage changes, right? And I think that it changes from being upset at being dishonored to an almost adolescent angst at the meaninglessness of the whole system. That's book nine, nine yep. lots has been written, right? But when he loses Patroclus, is he really angry at Hector or is he angry at himself and the universe? Because the problem with the Iliad is that Achilles asks for the Achaeans to die and he gets what he wants. Yep. And when it happens, he kills everything in his path. Right. right. And he tries to kill himself, stops eating, right? He stops being part of life. So I would say that there, there are, I would say that there's a, totality of his rage. It's a story of rage 
that moves through different stages and that part of it then communicates with that theme you brought up. So you're right, the Kipria starts out with a line, it doesn't start out with this line, but it includes a line that's repeated in the Iliad, the beginning. And the that line is, yeah, Dios deteleto bule, right? And the rage of Zeus was being completed, right? And so the- Or the plan, or- Yeah, yeah sorry, rage, sorry. The plan or will of Zeus was being completed, right? The imperfect aspect of that verb, eteleto, is crucial to understand the understanding the frame of the entire thing. We're all in process of Zeus's plan, right? But it introduces for the Iliad a real interpretive problem because Achilles makes choices within the plan, right? And he asks Zeus to make a decision and to alter the parts of the plan. Okay. So I see here then, and then, so I think part of what happens is explained in the Odyssey. Right, so the beginning of the Odyssey, Zeus looks down and he complains about men. He's looking the story of Aegisthus and he says, mortals, they're always blaming us for their problems when they make their fate worse than it needs to be, or hooper moron, because of their own atostalia, recklessness, stupidity, foolishness, however you want to put it. So I think that what happens in the story of the Trojan War, or really the Odyssey and the, Ep and the Iliad together, is a, is an invitation for us to think about the relationship between determinism and free will and how much effect we really have on it, right? And the final message is bad things are definitely gonna happen. For example, you're going to die. People you know are going to die. But what really makes a difference, or what can make a difference, is are you gonna make the pain worse than it needs to be? And is it possible for you to make it better? So that's also a part so of- uh, sorry, just briefly, yeah. that's also part of the Oedipus story, right? I mean, what's striking about Oedipus isn't that he sleeps with his mom after killing his dad. I mean, that's striking, right? But that's not going to happen to the average person, right? <laughs> the takeaway lesson from that is that bad things are going to happen. It happens to oh, all of us, right. every single one of us in our minds, as Freud knows. Right. But you can make it a lot worse by being a terrible person. So I, I agree with that, but um, I'm going to push a little because I was about to say when you mentioned Oedipus that it sounded like your reading of the Homer is a tragic reading of Homer and a kind of anthropocentric human reading of Homer. But you can also, pushing on the cosmic direction that you mentioned, right? you were connecting the Kipri, I think, to Achilles' generic rage. And I agree that he's a generic rage, but I wonder what do you think of, and this is another interpretive mode that, for example, Cedric Whitman is famous for, um, builds on the fact that Achilles actually attacks a river god. He attacks a god and he would be killed, of course, but, but fire, Hephaestus intervenes and stops that. Is Achilles also, is his universal rage also directed against that boule of Zeus, against the gods and the whole order of the universe itself? Absolutely. Right. 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 So I see, like, you know, to go to a different tradition, right? I mean, Achilles' rage there is against the bounds of mortality that okay. took his friend. So some of the most convincing conversations I've had about this is with Leonard Milner. Right, my he wrote the, the book on rage on Maynard. Yeah, he wrote the book on rage, but he also talks a bit about that. Um, and this is an, an unpublished work, an eulogy he delivered for a friend of his who died early. He talks about the relationship between Patroclus and Achilles and that beautiful speech where Achilles talks about how Patroclus, he always thought Patroclus was going to live and he was going to die. And that Patroclus was going to go back home and introduce his son Neoptolemus to his father. And so, you know, Lenny uses some Lacan to talk about sort of the self bifurcated there, but it's clear that Achilles sees in Patroclus himself in his own death, 
And to me, there's this clear, you know, thematic connection or analog to what happens in uh, the Gilgamesh poems, right? Which is that Gilgamesh fully realizes his mortality in the death of Enkidu. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think there we have his rage moves from specific, oh, Agamemnon. So, so let's think about, let's use different language. Achilles has heroic fragility. When someone, when someone strikes his worldview as Agamemnon does in book one, and he's like, oh, someone can take my stuff away from me. He throws, a giant, yeah. he throws a giant fit. He's like, this could never happen. Right. And then he has time to think about it. And he's like, wait a minute. If everything can be taken away from me, then nothing is truly mine. Right? So he's in a pretty shaky place when the one thing he loves most in the world dies. Mm-hmm. Right? That thing that he thought could not be taken away from him. Which in fact, and this is in my unpublished dissertation, but the, the word that refers only mutually to Achilles and Patroclus, hetairos, translated working opinion, that het part is from the reflexive pronoun, swear, where we get like self and set and so forth. So it absolutely is the warrior self, which is another bending back version of yeah. you or something like that. Yeah. I mean, so, and so for me, it's, just, it's clear that his rage, it, it's that, let's think of his rage as a force that's unbottled, right? Or fire that's set alight by, I don't right. know, gender reveal party or something ridiculous like that. Right? <laughs> and it just, it just keeps finding more fuel. And the fuel, the more it burns, the more fundamental and permanent the fuel becomes. Right, right. eventually it's limits of mortality itself. I, I agree with this completely. And it also is reflect, reflected by the way my undergrads tend to receive it now, which is they usually now, and maybe this would have been different in a warrior society, but nowadays usually in book one, they're like, well, come on, like, this is not a big deal. Like deal with it. Like he's some jerk. You don't actually need this girl. You don't care about her, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But of course, they don't feel that way when Patroclus dies. That's an obvious well, problem. But that's a, one thing that's interesting. So maybe to train back a little bit to, to leadership, Sorry. right, <laughs> uh, politics, is that in the reception of book one, especially in the early period, like in Plato, Achilles doesn't get a very good hearing, right? I mean, Socrates at one point in the Republic says, well, you know, Achilles was insubordinate, mm-hmm. right? And so I think modern readers tend to say Agamemnon's terrible, we like Achilles. Part of that is because we don't understand what a hero is, or well, we I- misunderstand it. I would have said that with my generation, but now my undergrads actually sympathize a lot less with Achilles. But when I was an undergrad, we were all on Achilles' side. So I don't know if that's changing now even. I don't know if that's what you're experiencing either. But. Um, it depends. So when I taught this in San Antonio to families that had more experience with the military, there was less sympathy for Achilles, huh. right? Because hierarchy was understood in a different way, right? So I think a, a lot of the a lot of, let's say, our generation or early generations uh, fill Achilles' nature has to do with our distance from hierarchies and our rugged individualism, right? Possibly even like Northeasternism, maybe? Yeah, yeah. perhaps. But, but I think that a fair reading of book one understands that part of Homeric aesthetics is never falling on a single side or giving you an easy answer. Absolutely, yes. And I yeah. think that it's like everybody, I, I don't know what your language rules are on this podcast, but everybody's an asshole in book one, except for Nestor, he's just dumb, right? <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's just, it's a tragedy of misunderstanding and raising the stakes because that's all you know how to do. I think that's right, but it also is demonstrating really how the, all of that political gaming is actually impotent next to the sheer physical fact of the gods screwing you over by giving you a plague. But. 
And there's another thing too that I've really been thinking about from my experience in participating in governance and leadership, which is that there are two real forces in, in human politics and governance, and that's institution and personnel, right? And you could have the best personnel in the world, but if you have crappy institutions, they're limited, right? But you get the best institutions in the world. And if you have bad personnel who don't observe those institutions, but have power, then it really doesn't matter, right? So I've been thinking about that at my school where institutionally we're young and we don't have as many rules, but we have some really good people in key positions who've made fair and just decisions. And I look at other schools with more complex and histories and I see some bad decisions getting made and it doesn't matter what kind of institutions they have, it just sort of falls apart. And I also think about the US government over the past few years, right? Which is that there's been no ability to check the power of the executive branch, right? It's there in the constitution, but nobody's using it, right? So when I look at the Iliad, I see, look, we have weak institutions and strong personalities. Mm -hmm. And what happens when the interest of the strong personalities in power outweigh the convenience of the institutions? I see where you're going, that, um, but I still think that there isn't any solution available to the Greeks in Iliad 1 to the plague, except for just getting yeah. the gods what they want. Right? Well, yeah, so that, that would have been, the, the, the solution would have been for Agamemnon to put the good of his people ahead of himself. Right, yes. Right. Okay, so let me ask, a kind of relating back to the, to the like, expertise versus, I guess, institutional question, which you didn't bring up, but it's making me think. So institutions, and now I'm drawing on my experience in, in tech like management, and also in software design, but um, the institution has a certain amount of momentum that is from its structure. Mm-hmm. The structure is something that can be produced relatively arbitrarily by a kind of social programming, by the production of a constitution or the creation of bylaws or even statements of like mission, vision, values, and that sort of thing. Those things have a certain force on their own, usually as words, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes as physical objects, probably less, well, probably less in humanities, but even in universities, right? The, 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 like, universities work the way they do partly because their labs are built in a certain way and you need a whole bunch of money to change that. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, the the thing that needs to add the form to those institutional structures always, I think, needs to be someone with more expertise than the people who are maintaining it day to day. That is, we we like to think at least that the person who wrote the constitution, the persons were geniuses. We like to think that the laws that are um, legislated, that are passed are the result of decades of not just debate, but also of like a, a secret cabal of brilliant people who are coming up with the legislation that the like hired representatives of the people kind of pick and choose among all of these brilliant possible legislation. So there, there's an idea that the institution should be embodying expertise a lot more than the personnel who you know, work the machinery. That's of course greatly exaggerated in the modern world where we have the state, where we have corporations, where the institution machinery is much more like an actual physical technical engineering kind of device. But of course, that is also the thing that Plato's trying to produce in his fantasy Calipolis and his ideal state is, I'm a genius expert, you're a genius expert, maybe we can talk this through and come up with a way to describe a thing, maybe more in the, in the laws, that kind of doesn't matter as much if the people who are running it are fully involved because the expertise is open. That's one reading anyway. So I, I mean, I get exactly where you're going. Okay. And I think the problem is this, is that universal expertise is impossible and perfect expertise in any domain is impossible, and that power and expertise are not coterminous, right? So if we were to create something from the ground up, like a platonic republic, right, perhaps. But we live in a world of power and wealth 
and other structures. So when I see organizations, I'm again, most familiar with organizations I've seen like the army where my wife was a captain or universities. And most of the time, the people who keep it running are experts in keeping it running, not in a domain of academic or subject expertise of some type of excellence. Because the fact is the systems are so complex just to keep up and running that you know, it's really hard to imagine that expertise would actually come up to it. And then we can get to a, you know, a platonic a public question. What is the art of leadership? Right. And I would say, you know, one of the things I've learned since, you know, way back when we all started having these conversations is how much it's dependent on context and group dynamics. Right. I mean, I've, I've long thought about the metaphor of pickup basketball. Right. And, you know, I don't know if you've played much pickup basketball. I played a ton in New York and you have people who come into a game and they think, I know I'm a shooter. I shoot three points or they come in the game and like, I'm going to drive to the basket. You have very few people who come into a pickup game and say, I'm going to wait and see what needs to be done based on the people who are here. So most of the time when I see situations where let's say a department chair needs to rise up or a new manager, or you get in a new vice provost. And these are the things I've observed quickly. Those people who are most successful come in and observe and figure out who's going to shoot, who's going to play defense and what they can do to improve the situation, right? Those are the successes, but more often than not, people come in with a very clear idea of who they are and how they want to do things. So I think the problem, again, to go back to the Iliad, to go way too wide, both Achilles and Agamemnon think they should have the ball all the time, mm-hmm. right? I don't, this metaphor is not gonna work, so I'm gonna leave, <laughs> right? And they aren't thinking about the fact that the entire war effort, everything they do is dependent upon a lot of people contributing to it. I, so it's not yeah, about context. It's I about can see that, but um, let me ask then, picking up the, the ball in that metaphor again. In the situations that I used to play a lot of pick a basketball, because basically you're in New York City, I grew up in the Bronx and that's down the street, so you play right. basketball down the street. That's what and, you do. Yeah, but what you're saying is true. Somebody maintains their role when they can kind of do an okay job with it. But if you are consistently thwarted and you just score not at all or contribute nothing at all in the mode in which you're coming in and you're not furious and you don't quit, you will adjust if you suck, if you fail for enough. Because in a game, you want to win, right? There's a built-in I, I don't know about that. I've played with people who just keep jacking up threes no matter what happens. And they get they keep missing. just enough, like 25%, that they yeah. think they can keep going, right? Well, but, what, but just enough is the question. There is a threshold. <laughs> below it, the frustration is too great. And I think in the context in which we're talking about right now, right, like COVID, that I'm assuming that that threshold gets a lot lower because the stakes are a lot higher. That is, if you're just like failing at things and doing it your own way and it doesn't work, you're gonna get a lot more upset and frustrated much faster. Right? That's, the thing, that's the thing that's amazing. That it doesn't right? happen that way. It's not happening, Yeah. right? It's not, we haven't had, look, we, anybody who's rational and actually learns about it would know that if we had a nationwide shutdown in March fully for two weeks, maybe 10,000 would be dead or fewer at this point. It's that simple. Yet we keep spreading, we keep refusing to change, and we tell lies about it. 
right? And this is, so the question is, what is the threshold? And yep. the, the second, and the threshold is myriad Achaeans facing yep. their doom. Yep. And whose death is going to be important enough for us to change our tactics? And the Iliad, whose death is important enough, right? The Patroclus, is, it, doesn't, it doesn't solve the problem. It just ratchets up the death. And in the end, I mean, the Iliad ends with the burial of horse-taming Hector, right? The best man of the Trojans is dead. Achilles' doom is sealed. And really, nothing has been changed. Are you saying that there is somebody? Like if Tom Hanks were to die of COVID, people would care? <laughs> I don't, I I don't can't even imagine that. Actually. Right, so, that, so that's the thing. To go back to the, to the, so playing pickup basketball is more rational <laughs> <laughs> than governance, I see. Yeah. right? Because <laughs> we walk away from basketball and go to other lives and do other things, right? People's entire sense of being and meaning is rolled up in governance and leadership and our sense of who we are as a nation and a people. And I think that that's, again, good to wrench it back to Iliad 1. Nobody can walk away from the roles that they are espousing for themselves. Right? It costs too much to their sense of self for Agamemnon to give up the greatest place of honor and Achilles will give it up at a cost, which is withdrawing from the coalition. Well, but this does vary by culture. Some cultures actually will reward you giving up or quitting because you did a crap job. Maybe. So I don't think it's like intrinsic to human nature exactly. Oh, no, 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 no. Um, I, I, okay. I, yeah, I don't All know right, if it's yeah. intrinsic to human nature. That that's something for right, yeah, to, tell, to tell us in the future, right? But yeah, I mean, but it is intrinsic to our version of so team. culture in America. Right, but what that means is that your identity as as a leader is more important than the things that you're responsible for as the leader. Right. Yeah, it really is. Wait, so that's a very sad and depressing kind of direction to end up in. <laughs> um, but I think I mean, look, there are people who are standing up and successfully facing this conflict on college campuses and in individual cities across this country who are taking care of their own laoi uh -huh. to the best of their ability despite the failure of their own superiors but their songs are not going to be sung right they're doing just enough right or more across the board and one of the things that's been really transformative for me is watching the sacrifices that good leaders have to make in a time of crisis of themselves, of their health, their time, of their ego to listen to other people. So here in the Northeast, we have, you know, consortiums of schools whose presidents and provosts have basically gotten together and shared all their plans, right? And said, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And the schools that aren't involved are the ones you hear in the news, Northeastern kicking out students, BC having a crisis on campus because they're not following the same plans other schools are, right? So these schools, what did they do? They listened to experts. They gave up their ego of need, needing to be the person who had the solution and tried to do what was best for their communities. And our best cities with responses are doing the same thing. So in Boston, like we had a real risk of being as bad as New York, right? We had clusters here early on, but our governor, and our mayor worked pretty well together, despite one being a Republican, one being a Democrat. And we, we did a pretty decent job of turning things around.
right? Despite right. our diverse communities and our challenges. But if you look at a place like New York, where the governor and the mayor were at each other all the time, competing for glory, you had disaster. Yeah, right. It's interesting, yeah, you mentioned also the idea like we have to rely on our own people or something like that. That's something I noticed when looking at some universities, including around here, where they were like, well, X says this, but our people say Y, and I'm a little bit like, but the reality is reality. I haven't sided with you right. just because you are my club. Yeah. The virus doesn't care about this at all. Well, Do your best to know stuff if you really care about the problem. And our provost, uh, Lisa Lynch, I'm naming her just because she's phenomenal. I mean, she would say in meetings on the task force, look, I don't care where good idea comes from. You know, I'm going to steal ideas from everybody I can because my job is to take care of this university. Right? Even Calcas. Yeah. yeah, right. And our city, you know, in Boston, our mayor, you know, he's a very sort of understated guy, you know, an Irish guy from Dorchester, my neighborhood now. And he did the same thing, right? Not flashy, just straight up, this is going to be hard and we're going to do it, right? And there's no silver lining in this disaster, but we do have the opportunity to see who did things right and what they did. And to go back to sort of our opening conversation about experts and plagues, the people who minimize the deaths and mitigated the risks are those who listen to experts and to other people's good ideas. And then to take that back to the Iliad, I don't know how many times Nestor says that. Because right, like, Nestor says repeatedly, like, you got to listen to a good idea wherever it comes from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know? no, that's true. And I don't know if it's my like blue collar background saying this, but it does seem to me that the leaders there have been successful are the people who are just doing their jobs, who are not in the slightest interested in chaos, actually. They're just doing their job and their job is to protect the people that, are, that they're responsible for. Yeah. And that idea is, uh, to, to just close real quick, I guess, I'm, I mentioned experts before, but I, I really didn't, I really shouldn't have said experts. I should have said people who have a craft at all, people who have any kind of techne. They don't have to have secret knowledge like a mantis does, like a right. seer does. But anybody who takes their craft seriously is going to use whatever they can to bring about the result because the end point, the, the constructed community, let's say, or the safe community, or you know, the, the table that you've built with your craft is much more important than you or your role as the artist, right? Or as the craftsperson. Mayor. And there's also the idea that, I mean, a craft is something that doesn't, that belongs to you in the execution, but doesn't belong to you intrinsically. Right? right. It's not a gift. It doesn't make you special. Yep. yep. Right? And that's, I mean, that's where there's room, I think. I mean, you know that I tend to take a dim view at times of leadership studies, <laughs> right? But there is room in case studies uh, of seeing, you know, what works and what doesn't. And what, what are the common things? And, you know, this year I've learned so much about context, who's in the room, right? Goals, right? guiding principles, these things are important, but also humility, you know, and understanding, you know, that what you center as the goal of your practice as a leader will dictate your outcomes. Right. And that's, yeah, that's, a, I think, almost a good place to end here since we're running out of time because... You're talking there about something that is very important that humanities can actually help you get, which right. is not simply knowledge of the object, but self-knowledge that allows you to actually optimize your relation to the object to produce a result that's better than if you were just, I don't know, following a, a textbook or something. Right. right. Class. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to teach someone how to figure out what's important about life. Right. right? But yeah. that's really that will guide you in your decisions. And so as a closing thing, one of the things we did early on at Brandeis that I think was the most important thing I've done as a leader in any capacity 
is I came up with, with the faculty senate of a list of guiding values to help us make our decisions in the hard year of challenges, financial decisions, you know, opening decisions. And at the top, you know, we, we put on, you know, equity, flexibility, accessibility, and our, you know, relation to our core values and mission. And I said, look, when we go through every decision we make, we have to ask, what does this mean for these decisions? And sometimes we're not gonna be able to live up to our values. But if we don't acknowledge that we're not living up to our values, then we'll never have a chance to. Right, and that list is good, but I'm almost surprised and embarrassed to think that I was wondering, would you say that the top of the list was not making people die? Since <laughs> yeah, it's, like it's, so, yeah, so it's not safety. <laughs> safety was the given, like that was first one. Safety. Well, you'd think that is given, right? But <laughs> it doesn't look like that's always been true. No, 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 right? It's like, what are, yeah, so we never yeah. had, we never said, what are our acceptable losses? Okay, yeah. <laughs> one, no, and our president almost closed didn't have us open at all because he said, I don't know if risking one life is worth what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. And I don't, I don't think that every school or organization actually thought that way. I'm pretty sure that some people did think about acceptable losses because this language that creeps through and like releases in the conversations where you can tell yeah. that that's what's happening. Yeah. In addition to this week's guest, the Leading Thinkers podcast would like to thank Eric Shimalonis, Aisha Champagne, and Malaron Hodge. For more information, please visit Kallion.org. That's K-A-L-L-I-O-N.org. Thanks for listening.